The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Now we're just a few days away. From the much-discussed and much-maligned Qatar World Cup, the usual on-field anticipation largely being overshadowed by the political and social and human rights issues within the host country. But this is not the first time that a regime has sought to use sport, or indeed the World Cup itself, to project an image of themselves to the world, and not entirely accurate image of themselves to the world. The Independence Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney has been writing about this uh, in the newspaper. Uh, fascinating piece, Miguel, and you're very, very welcome uh, to the show. Um, you start in Italy in 1934, is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing that should be said, I suppose, is that every World Cup is semi-political because of its immense power, its, its huge global popularity, the, the amount of people it emotionally touches. And so it's, uh, it's obviously subject to use from any government. But th- there are... Now four, I would say, overtly political World Cups with that template being set, as you say, by 1934, which, of course, came in a very specific uh, era in world history that that didn't didn't just set the template for World Cups, but set the template for the use of sport because this was this was in Italy in 1934. So it was very much Mussolini's World Cup in the way that the 1936 Olympics were, were Hitler's Olympics. It might, I mean, because it was that little bit earlier, it probably wasn't quite as... It, it, it didn't come quite as many questions and public debates at the time as the German Olympics did, or the Berlin Olympics did. Uh, because actually, just when I was doing my research, a lot of, say, the, the English-speaking language uh, newspapers didn't actually even cover that 1934 World Cup. The... the, the um, the UK clubs had boycotted. It was only the second tournament. The World Cup was still in the formative points. But Mussolini very clearly saw the uh, the huge propaganda power of it. Uh, this this World Cup was basically draped in fascism everywhere you looked, to, to salutes, to the name of the stadiums, named after fascism, named after Mussolini. He made a point of going to every game. Uh, the team was being called, you know, M- Mussolini's Azuri. Um, and I mean, in in a much more simplistic way to us, I think the 2022 World Cup, it was it was so overtly used by a regime. And then, of course, as as, <laughs> as tends to happen in these sort of situations as well, uh, there were there followed a lot of questions about how that, how that influenced the football itself, given Italy went and won it their first World Cup. Now, they did win it four years later in France as well. But there was all sorts of. Um, talk about not 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 so much match fixing but this kind of um influencing referees through selection where where one of the stories at the time or one of the reports was from from Czechoslovakia who were the defeated finalists where it, it, it were it was accused that uh, Mussolini had actually picked the ref for the final is is this where we we have the story about win or die or, or is that apocryphal uh, I mean, it depends who you talk to in Italy, but certainly it's become part of the legend of that. Uh, I mean, and there's, 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 there's some doubt about who exactly said it. It, it does feel that Giuseppe Miazza, who was Italy's great star, uh, used it as a rallying cry rather than anything political. But I think what is more relevant in that regard was uh, this story that before the final, <laughs> Mussolini basically said to the manager, Pozzo, um, he, he'll know the consequences if he doesn't win. 
<laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, and, and I read as well. Um, I, I can't remember if it was in, in, in your piece or elsewhere that I, it kind of in a kind of case of remarkable timing. Now, retrospectively, the day after the World Cup final, uh, Mussolini flew off to Central Europe, where he met one her Hitler for the very first time. Uh, they had never met uh, before this point. So, important of things to come. Um, in your piece, then as well, you, you kind of jump from 1934 all the way up to 1978, which isn't to suggest that all those World Cups in between were a devoid of scandal but Argentina in 1978 is deserving of special mention again Yeah I mean I would say there, there is uh, Qatar is basically right through the very nature of Qatar every element of it is problematic particularly because the entire infrastructure of the tournament has been built on what human rights groups and migrant workers themselves would call modern slavery then there's the use of it you know so, so many civil rights in Qatar but it, it, it is still arguable that Argentina 78 uh, surpasses that because of the brutality of the military junta at the time and also how directly that was linked to the football. I mean, one of the, one of the most incredible elements of that World Cup, and it really is amazing. Like, I, I was actually I was speaking to a few people uh, that played at it, including uh, Ralf Edström, a Swedish player who was one of a few who went to march or, or went to even kind of just show support to the mothers of the, of the disappeared. Uh, as well as Omar, Omar La Rosa, uh, one of the Argentina 1978 players, who I was talking to him about whether that, that medal was sullied. He would say no because it was for the people rather than the government. But of course, all this was in a context where just 500 metres from the stadium that Argentina won the final in, there was a, a Navy barracks, I think it was, that was basically used as a military prison where 5,000 uh, 5, 5, went, 5,000 of the disappeared went, I think the numbers are only 150 came out and, and, and true that and in there, there was the most appalling brutalities, you know, tales of torture, castration, rape and all this while prisoners could actually hear the cheers from from the Monumental Stadium uh, less than a mile away. It, it, it's remarkable. And, and, and now so many of the players, it, it's become such a huge discussion in Argentina. And even even there's even this big question of whether it should be considered a, a victory in that sense and whether mm. 1986 was their, was their first victory Diego Maradona has even spoken in those terms um, and like e- even since then a lot of the players have met with mothers that have disappeared and the question is always to them well why didn't you speak out at the time now they would say they didn't know the full reality uh, that's a matter of dispute given some of the players had directly been affected by it I think including I think it was Tarantini um, that, that, that some of his family were caught up in it Um but but certainly, it's. I, I suppose it points to how Qatar is almost a more sophisticated version of this process. Even even though we're talking about how um, we're talking about how the the entire infrastructure is built on this on this system of modern slavery. In some ways, it's not quite the pure brutality of it isn't as in your face as what was happening as Argentina. Given it, obviously that was surrounded by mm. all the pageantry of the uh, the military regime. Yeah, I mean, imagine the psychological uh, uh, torment of being in those prison cells and, and kind of hoping that everybody is wondering where you are and that they're occupied with thoughts of the disappeared and then you just hear the entire nation celebrating uh, there's, outside. There's, there's, there's a really incredible element to that, which I suppose speaks to both 
the kind of liberating power of football in that way, but also exactly why these regimes use it. I can't remember the name of the of the prisoner who said it. So, but he was a lower league footballer who was also a philosophy student, and he has this kind of this incredible line about what is it about football that basically makes um, torture suddenly celebrate with tortured at the moment of a goal? Or, or I'm paraphrasing there, but that was that was the sentiment, yeah. and 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 that's it as well. A lot of the prisoners actually talk about how as goals went in they knew it was happening they were celebrating alongside the guards but isn't it remarkable that at one of the big footballing powerhouses of the world in Argentina that they could have open discussions about whether 1978 counts as a World Cup victory because of what was happening and still we find ourselves here in 2022 in Qatar yeah I mean the, the one thing I would say about this obviously Qatar is um, it was awarded this World Cup the same day as Russia, which I would very much put up there. In fact, human rights groups would now describe Russia as a modern equivalent of, of 1936, given everything that's happened since. Um, and, and I mean, that, that that point, especially the way all the controversy over the way with the bid was won, it kind of, it's amazing how it pointed to changes in the global order way beyond football, right down to the fact, obviously, I mean, the, the invasion of Ukraine has led to a global energy crisis that Qatar has greatly benefited from and it's actually suppressed political criticism of Qatar. That's one thing that's been really noticeable at this. MPs aren't exactly talking about how bad this is because there's, there's such a dependency on Qatar. Mm. And so much of these World Cups is part of the same process where it's these problematic states. And this is particularly true with these kind of new powers in the Gulf and the, and, and the way they're kind of running the club game now. Qatar running Paris Saint-Germain and their president running the European Club Association. Abu Dhabi owning Manchester City. Saudi Arabia owning Newcastle United. But all that's part of a greater process of essentially buying swathes of Western infrastructure to embed themselves, to integrate. So any criticism is is uh, is more difficult. So um, basically business can continue yeah. as they seek to diversify post-oil without any of these same questions. And essentially, in 2010, when these World Cups were awarded, football just wasn't ready for that. And it's still, it still isn't ready for it. It's still, it's still not able to deal with this. It's not legislated well enough. Listen, Miguel, it's a great piece, uh, a fascinating read, and I recommend it to anybody out there who hasn't seen it yet. You can find it on the Independence website. Uh, their chief football writer is Miguel Delaney. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.